Well, when we're born, we're given a name. But as we go through life, sometimes we pick up other names. It could be tied to a title of our profession. Maybe someone is called a doc or prof. Sometimes we get a nickname. It could be a, a play on our name. It could be a characteristic that describes us. Maybe it's based upon something that we've done. When I was a rookie cop, I had a couple of nicknames. One of those was Maverick. And uh, I got the name Maverick one day because we had stopped a car and it was filled with uh, what cops call hinky people. These were some shady characters. And uh, as a, a young cop on the street, I'm you know, real cognizant. I'm watching the car, watching them, trying to write this ticket that had all these blocks you fill in. And right above the signature line is where you put the model of the car. And as I was looking at this group of people, I, I write the name Maverick where I'm supposed to sign the ticket. And uh, you have field training officers when you're a rookie, and one of the things they do is they check all your paperwork at the end of a shift to make sure things are right. And as he's going through these tickets, he sees Maverick. Well, he announces happily to the entire station, uh, we have Officer Maverick among us, and thereafter I was called Maverick. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't a Pinto that I had stopped that day. <laughs> Uh, some of you in the military have had similar stories where a superior gave you a name like that. Uh, I had other nicknames. One was uh, Pastor with a Pistol, another was Reverend Raj. Uh, I was going through seminary, as I've told you before, and uh, both based on that and the way I would witness to officers. There are some other names I cannot repeat from the pulpit this morning. Uh, but if someone were to give you a name that was indicative of your personality, if someone were to give you a nickname based upon something you've done, what, what would that be? If you were wearing a name tag and said, hello, my name is, what, what would somebody put there? As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 4, we're going to meet a man by the name of Joseph, but we're going to see that he was given another name uh, based upon the way that he lived his life. Uh, in Acts 4, 32 through 37, we read, "...and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul." And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were a common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and then lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as, to each as any had need. Now Joseph a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, a name which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we, we're not going to be able to go into all the background today, but if you were here when we looked at Acts chapter 2, you'll recall we talked about this characteristic of the church. And we saw that this wasn't Christian socialism. Everybody who had property wasn't giving up everything they had, becoming penniless. We saw that what was happening is sacrificial giving. People were freely and voluntarily sharing of resources. And we see in verses 34 and 35, there were many in the church doing this. But here in verses 36 and 37, there's one man who's given special mention. His name is Joseph. Now, notice it says he's a Levite. Uh, as many of you know, the, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and one of them was the tribe of Levi. And the Levitical line is where the priests came from. The Aaronic priesthood came out of the tribe of Levi. Those who were Levites were uh, ministers in the temple. There were the priests, and the Levites were the musicians, the doorkeepers. They helped with the service 
of the temple. So what we know about Joseph is he was a uh, vocational uh, minister in the temple. When he was uh, a Jewish Levitical priest, before he became a believer, he worked in the temple. Now you'll recall something we saw in the previous chapters is during this time there in Jerusalem, there was a lot of persecution taking place. Uh, In fact, the Jewish authorities were trying to kill the church. Uh, So being a person who was working in the temple under the authority of the Jewish leaders, when Levi becomes a priest, uh, it it becomes a problem. Uh, Now, before we get to that fully, I want you to understand something too about the Levites. As you read through the scripture, the book of Deuteronomy tells us in 10.9, as well as in Numbers 18, 20, and 24, that the Levitical line could not own property. So some people read this and say, what is going on? Is this guy disobedient? What's, what's the background here? Well, there's two possible explanations. One we just saw, remember, he's a Levite from Cyprus. So whether it's his wife or his family's background, they could have had property outside. What those passages in Numbers and Deuteronomy say is when the allotment of land was being given to the tribes, the Levitical line was told God is their allotment. It was through the sacrifices in the temple and things they would be provided for. So they were not given land per se. Uh, so maybe he owned land like that. Or if you read in the book of Jeremiah in 32, 6 through 15, you see that as Israel was about to be carried into exile, God told Jeremiah, a priest, to buy land in the, in the land of Israel. So possibly the prohibition is removed. Whatever the background here, what I want you to focus on is uh, what I was just talking about. Here's a Levite. He's a card-carrying union member, so to speak. And the Jewish authorities would have pulled his union card which means you can't work in the temple anymore. Your livelihood is gone. Your family, your support system is in Cyprus. You're there in Jerusalem. You've lost your livelihood. You don't have any direct support. What many of us would do in a situation like that is look at our resources, conserve them, hoard them. But we see this as a guy that says, there are other people out there that have more need than me. And he's willing to sacrifice those resources to help others. Now, this is uh, a a guy who who brings the money to the disciples, the apostles, the 12 leaders, and it says he laid the money at the apostles' feet. Notice that there are no strings attached. He doesn't say, hey, before I give you this big check, uh, I want to talk about the name that's going to be on the building. Or, uh, hey, where is the wing or the the plaque going to go that says Barnabas gave this money? He doesn't do any of that. It says he simply gave it to the leadership, and he says, look, I trust you to do what God directs you to do. Now, we see that it encouraged the apostles, because it's the apostles who give this guy his nickname. It says the apostles name him Barnabas. The name Barnabas, if you ever hear like Bar-Josephus or something, I mean son of. So he's the son of encouragement, and the word for encouragement is parakaleo. And this is a a Greek word that is a combination word. Para is a preposition that means alongside of. Kaleo means to call someone. Uh, Not like you call them on a phone, but uh, the church is called the ekklesia. Ek means out, as we've talked about. So the called out ones, we as believers, the church body, are called out. So a parakaleo is somebody you call alongside uh, of you to encourage you. Now, the picture here was of a, imagine a weary traveler who's just loaded down with stuff. And as uh, this person is shuffling down the road, their head is low, their feet are dragging, they, they look like they just can't take one more step. 
And somebody who comes alongside that person to encourage them would be a person who says, uh, let me bear the burden with you. The Bible tells us in Galatians, you who are spiritual, bear one another's burdens. So it's the picture of lifting the burden off the person, maybe taking it upon yourself. At the very least, you would hook your arm under theirs and you'd say, look, let me help you go another step. Let's keep going down this journey of life together. Uh, so an encourager is somebody who is called alongside and who helps another along. Uh, we would say somebody is a paraclete. Paracleo, a paraclete is a word that would describe this person. Now, that's a rich word. It's actually used to describe God himself. In uh, John 14, 16, it's used of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is uh, the person who we've talked about indwells us, but he's also the person who supports and encourages us. It's used of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is called our paraclete. And it is used there, it's translated as our advocate. It's literally our defense attorney. And the picture is how Christ comes alongside us at our trial when Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is there and saying, hey, you know about Roger? This guy uh, who's the pastor at Wayside Chapel, you know, he's not really holy. He's a sinner. He's, he's done all this stuff in his life, and it would be like any one of you. And our, our accuser is there, uh, and, and we say, look, I need help. I need an attorney. And the guy that shows up isn't saying, let's figure out a legal loophole, let's quash evidence. Let's... Jesus walks up and says, yeah, Roger's a sinner. Uh, so is everybody else. And, and, he, and, and we're going, uh, I want to fire this guy. I want a better attorney. But what our advocate does then is Jesus says, uh, you or I as believers are sinners. And we're guilty. And because we're guilty, Romans says, the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, there in Romans 6.23. And what Jesus says is, we owe a penalty of sin called death. And then he presents his hands and shows the nail scars and the hole in his side and his feet. And he says, I went to the cross and I paid that penalty of death. And we are uh, allowed into heaven, not because the charges were overlooked, but because the penalty has been paid in full. That's the paraclete that we have. That's who Jesus Christ is. And as we look at this picture of a paraclete, not only is God one who comes alongside us, but he's given us one another as well. There was a little boy who was in his bed at night, and it was one of those dark and stormy nights. The, the thunder was booming, the lightning was flashing, this little boy was scared to death, and he screams out in the night for his father. And his dad comes running, stumbling into the room, and he gets in there, and he says, son, son, what's wrong? And he goes, daddy, I'm scared. And he goes, son, it's okay. It's just a storm. And, and, and you know, God is watching over you. He's going to take care of you. You're going to be fine. And the little boy goes, daddy, I know God is watching over me, but right now I need somebody with flesh and blood on. And, and how many times have we gone through some situation here in life and we're like, I know intellectually about God. I know Jesus promised I'll never leave you or forsake you. I know God is there. But don't you sometimes want somebody with flesh on? Don't you want somebody sometimes who can just come alongside you, put a, a hand on your shoulder, an arm under to support you, somebody who can say, it's okay, you're not alone. I'm with you. We're going to get through this together. You know, so important is encouragement that in Romans 12, as the spiritual gifts are listed, uh, the gift of encouragement is one of them. 
Now, spiritual gifts are special enablements for people who can do things in a, in, a, in a higher fashion, so to speak, than the rest of us. But it doesn't mean we're all excused from being encouragers. Throughout the Bible, the call to encourage is listed over 100 times. Examples of that are 1 Thessalonians 5.11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. God assumes we're doing it. He says, just as you're doing Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another day after day. It's not a one-time event. It's an over and over event. The reason we gather as a church, one of those is found here in Hebrews 10.25. It says, not to forsake our own assembling together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God says we gather as Christians to be encouraged, to say maybe you were made fun of at work or school or, or you're shaky in your walk with God or you're struggling with your faith and you come here and you get around and you look around and you say, I'm not alone. There are others to come alongside to encourage you, to strengthen you, to walk with you. As you look at your own life this morning, would you say that you're an encourager? If somebody were looking at your name tag, would it say, hello, I'm an encourager? I'm a Barnabas. Now, as we look at Barnabas, his, his encouragement wasn't just through the fact that he gave a gift, which lifted some of the burden from the early church. Uh, he does it in many other ways. I mean, I give you a survey of the, the man Barnabas. We're going through the book of Acts as a church, and we're going to get to some of these other chapters uh, as we go. But I invite you to flip over to Acts chapter 9, because Barnabas shows up again in Acts chapter 9. Now, because we haven't gotten there, let me just summarize the story. And here in Acts chapter 9, you've got a guy by the name of Saul. Saul will later become the apostle Paul. But at this point, his Hebrew name is Saul. Paul is the Gentile or the Greek version of his name. And Saul was, a, was one of the Jewish authorities. He was a young uh, up-and-comer. This is a guy whose career was moving up and to the right, fast track to the top. And one of the things that was moving Saul into the upper echelons of leadership uh, was his hatred, his persecution of the church. And so here in Acts chapter 9, we see that he comes to the high priest in the first verse, and, and it says he asked for letters, uh, letters that would allow him to go outside of Jerusalem to Damascus. Uh, the church was being spread through persecution, it was growing, and, and he's been, has this reign of terror there in Jerusalem against the Christians. And now he says, I want to go on the road. And I want to arrest these men and women, and I want to bring them back, and I want them to be put to death. And so he gets these letters, and he's on the road with some traveling companions, and, and the scripture tells us that he has an encounter where there's this blinding light from heaven. And the, the mount he's riding on, his horse throws him, he falls to the ground, he's blinded by the light. The, the others traveling with him don't hear uh, the words, but they hear this thunderous sound. And, and what Saul hears is, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Now, he doesn't know who it is. And, he, and through this interaction, what he discovers is he's talking to the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ himself. This is why Paul could become an apostle later. He saw the resurrected Lord. And we're told that, that he, he understands Jesus wasn't some criminal, some faker who died on the cross, but he was indeed the promised Messiah. And he comes to faith. Now, Saul is blinded by his encounter. He goes into the city and he's, he's there in the city, and God sends another believer to pray for him because Paul still can't see. Now, this other Christian, you can imagine this guy, you're being told to go to the serial killer of Christians. And so this guy says, God, I don't want to do it. God says, okay, I'm with you. 
He goes, he prays for Paul, or Saul at the time, and the scales fall off his eyes and he can see. We're told that he gets baptized. Now, Saul goes into the synagogue. The synagogue is where the Jews would meet for worship. And he starts to preach. Now, if you're one of the Jewish uh, folks, you're thinking, you know, uh, the persecutor has shown up. He's going to take care of this. He's the greatest apologist, debater for the Torah, all these things. And instead of persecuting the believers, he actually preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, hey, this guy, Jesus Christ, was the Messiah. People are coming to faith. The Jewish authorities there are going, no, no, this is all wrong. This isn't what you came for. And in a twist of irony, Paul came to kill Christians, and they say, we're going to kill you. So he has to escape by night. He's led down in a basket. He flees back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he, he doesn't go back to the Jewish authorities. He goes to the Christians and says, hey, I'm one of you. I want to be in the church. And they all say, no, you're not. This is a trick. You want to get in the church, find out who we are, then you're going to kill us. And look at Acts 9.26. Uh, this, is, this is, I'm sorry, 9.27. It says, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Christ. Here you've got Saul, the killer of Christians. Everybody's saying, we don't want him around. In Acts 7 and 8, we're going to see that Saul was the guy who uh, gave hearty approval when Stephen gets martyred. One of the Christians there in Jerusalem is stoned to death while Paul's standing there watching the coats, saying, hit him again, he's still moving. And so this is the guy who's now in the church. And everybody's going, I'm not going to be around him. But Barnabas, the son of encourager, comes alongside him. And he says, hey, he's with me. He's okay. You can trust this guy. You know, he, he says, uh, don't you guys remember? God's in the business of changing lives. How many of us believe that? Do you believe God changes lives? You know, we say we do. But do we demonstrate it? You see, we see somebody who shows up here at Wayside. Maybe we know them from school or work, and we're going, it's the last person I'd expect to see here. And you know, what's funny is they're looking at you going, whoa, I didn't know they were here. <laughs> and, and, and so we see these people and we go, look, I know, I know about you. I know how you live. I know your reputation. I know the mistakes you've made. And then we, we sometimes forget that, you know what? God knows all about us. He knows our mistakes. He knows our reputation. And he was willing to give us a second chance and a third, and a fourth, and a fiftieth, and five hundredth, and on it goes for some of us. And how many of us are willing to be like Barnabas, who are willing to say, look, I know all about Paul, this guy named Saul, who killed people, who persecuted us, who by all natural uh, means should not be here, but this isn't natural, this is supernatural. God got a hold of him, he changed him. Now as we do that, let me just mention something here. Use wisdom and discretion. I'm not telling you to compromise your safety. I'm not telling you to, to get taken advantage of by people. But I am telling you to take a risk sometimes. And say, I'm going to step outside of my comfort zone. This person may not look like me. They may not talk like me. They may not act like me. And what we forget sometimes is we've got years, sometimes decades of sanctification that God's been doing. If we remember what we looked like when we came to Christ, we go, whoa, this person is so much farther ahead than me. And so what God says is, are we willing to be a Barnabas? 
Somebody who believes in others and comes alongside them and encourages them. Many of you will recognize this man. His name is Jackie Robinson. Now, Jackie Robinson is the person who broke the color barrier in baseball. In Major League Baseball, he was the first African-American player to play in the white, what had at that point been all-white major leagues. Now, it came with a cost to Robinson and his family. Everywhere Jackie went, people booed him, they threatened him, they threatened his family, they, they were going to lynch him, they were going to kill him, they made his life miserable. And uh, one day he was playing in his home stadium for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And like many in baseball, he made an unforced error. You know what happens, they're people. And most fans will, you know, groan or maybe boo a little and then it's over. Well, when Robinson did it, the booing went on and on and on. And they jeered and they yelled and he, he, he just stood there at second base. As this went on and on, as the humiliation continued, his head hung low and he stood there. Now at that point, there was uh, the Dodgers shortstop. The captain of the team was a guy named Pee Wee Reese. And Pee Wee Reese is over in his position and he comes walking over to where Jackie Robinson is at second base. And he reaches out and he puts his arm on Robinson's shoulder. And without saying a word, he just simply puts his arm on his shoulder and he looks up into the stands. And he just keeps looking into the stands. And it starts to grow quieter and quieter and people will call out and he'll just look at them. And eventually the stadium grows quiet. Jackie Robinson later said that that arm around his shoulder saved his career that day. He was ready to quit. He was ready to walk away. He was ready to just say, it's not worth it. But that day, Pee Wee Reese was a paracaleo, an encourager, somebody who came alongside, who, who lifted the burden, who supported the person and said, you can make it, you can go one more step. I believe in you, you're not alone. Friends, I want you to look around just for a moment. Just look around. It's okay. You got permission to look around. If they're asleep, just nudge them gently. <laughs> right next to you, possibly, is somebody who needs an encourager. We show up here at church, and we think everybody's got it together. Everybody's beautiful. They've got it all put together. And what we may not know is somebody walked in here this morning saying, this is it. This is my last chance. This is my last chance on church, on God. I, I, I don't know if anybody's going to be kind to me, if they're going to treat me nicely, if they're going to have a kind word for me. This week has been horrible. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are in rebellion. I've lost my job. I just don't know what I'm going to do. And people are in a place where they're ready to quit. And God calls on us to be encouragers, those who come alongside Many of you know of a horrible tragedy that happened in our city this week. There was a sophomore boy in high school, a young man who had been enduring bullying in his school. His parents moved him out of that high school into another high school, and the bullying continued. You know, we live in a day and age where bullying isn't just tripping you in the halls, knocking your books out of your hand, uh, threatening to beat you up on the, the playground anymore. It, it is what happens through social media and the cyberbullying and the cowards that hide behind the anonymity of that type of thing. And this young man hit a point where he said, I just can't go on one more step, one more day. And he went out in his backyard and he took his life and committed suicide. He was a guy who needed 
an encourager. He was a guy who needed somebody to come alongside him and say, you can do this. You're not alone. When we are encouragers, we may not just save a career. We may not just save a marriage. We may even save a life. And we need to look around and recognize that there are people all around us. You see them at school. Those loners who have their head hung low, those people that everybody makes fun of, those unpopular kids, and you're worried, if I become their friend, then it's going to cost me. I may lose my friends. I may have my reputation. I may become a target of the bullies as well. There are people at the military bases where you serve that are far from home. They're on their last chance in the military, and they're, they're struggling as well, and they, they're, they're getting beat down by the system and the drill sergeants and the other things that are happening, and they just need an encourager. They just need somebody to come alongside and say, hey, you can do this. One more step, one more day. We're together. There are people at work that are struggling. There are people maybe even in your own family or your neighborhood. And are we willing to be those encouragers, those Barnabases who will step up alongside somebody and say, you're not alone, I'm with you? When you go home today, I want you to think of those God has put in your path and then ask God to help you uh, to have the courage and to know how to encourage those people you know that are struggling. Let them know they count. Be that person who will step in. You see these riders and, and bicycle teams, the person will take the point to cut the wind so the other person can draft along. Uh, God has designed the system. You see it with geese and ducks and others that fly. They fly in a V formation, and they take the lead periodically and cut the wind and draft and say to the others, you can rest. I'm going to take point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get buffeted for a while. As you think about those people around you, who, who needs you to help shoulder the burden? Now, I want you to remember, you may be saying, Roger, I'm just barely making it myself. I can't take on anybody else's stuff. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not doing it alone. Remember who lives in us? It's the Holy Spirit. Our paraclete is God himself. He gives us a picture in the Bible of a yoke where we're on one side, he's on the other. Don't try to carry it alone. What we need to do is be like Barnabas. And let him, uh, let God be the one who's carrying the load. Now, sometimes it's not just a matter of us helping others. Sometimes we're the problem. Through our own words, through our own bullying, through our own, you know, fun little cutting remarks that we make on others, we're adding to the burden of others. And a way for you to check yourself is to look at your speech and use Ephesians 4.29 as a test. In Ephesians 4.29, we're told, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word good is the Greek word agathos. It literally means useful. Ask yourself, is what I'm saying useful? Is it helpful? Uh, the word edification means improvement. It, it speaks of improving or building up a building versus tearing it down. Ask yourself, is what I'm saying building somebody up or is it tearing them down? Uh, the word uh, encouragement means to give, when it says to give grace to those who hear, it literally means to confer a blessing. Do your words confer a blessing? You know, I've got a sharp mind and a quick wit, and I, there are so many instances I go, oh, I could just, I could kill it. I could go in, and, and God just convicts me and says, don't do that. I run this verse through my mind, and I go, is this going to be edifying or tearing down? Is this going to build them up, or is it going to? And if you can't pass that test, friends, don't say it. 
At home on our refrigerator, we, we have a, a poster with the word think. And, and there's an acronym I'll show you in a moment for think. And there are periodically times we have to say to one another at the dinner table, uh, did you think before you said that? Because the word think means T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? And sometimes the Bible says that a, a fool speaks without thinking. And so sometimes we have to ask ourselves, did I think? And if you look at Ephesians 4.29 or you think of think and it doesn't pass the test, then don't say it, don't post it, don't text it, don't tweet it. Just let it die. Are we those who are encouraging, building others up versus tearing them down? Now, think of the countless people, the countless lives that were changed in the early church because Barnabas was willing to come alongside Paul. As you read through Acts, you see that Paul had an enormous impact on the early church. And friends, I want you to recognize something. Paul's ministry and the impact of Barnabas, who built this guy named Saul, who became Paul up, is impacting you personally today. As you look at the Bible you're holding in your hand or as you're scrolling through it on your phone or your iPad, do you recognize that Paul was used by God to write over half, about half of the New Testament? What would have happened if Saul had been locked out of the church and put away? Now, I know God's sovereign, but I want you to understand uh, that through the ministry of Barnabas building Paul up, you and I are being built up today. Now, as we talk about the impact that one life can make, let's go back to our original guy named Barnabas, because God's still using him. You can turn over to Acts chapter 11 because he shows up again in Acts 11. Now, as the gospel is spreading and it's going out, remember that it was predominantly the Jews who were coming to faith first. They not only had the background about the promised Messiah, the gospel was being preached in the synagogues where the Jews were gathering. But in Acts 11:1, you notice that it not only spreads to uh, different parts of the world, but to a different ethnic group, because it says there were Gentiles. It says, now the apostles and brethren were th went who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, reading that, we would think that the, the people said, woohoo, this is great, the gospel's crossing over. Uh, but instead, what we find is there were some who were called Judaizers. These were Jewish believers who said, everybody's got to go through the same stuff that we did. You've got to become a proselyte. You've got to be circumcised. You have to be a good Jew, and then you become a believing Jew, and then you become... And God said, the law is not necessary for salvation. We can't... Romans warns us, if you want to keep the law, then you have to keep it 100%. Well, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, it tells us. Jesus fulfilled the law in full. He paid the penalty. And so what happens is, Peter, one of the apostles... As we're going to see as we go through Acts, there were all these meetings and councils. You think church business meetings are new today? These were going on in that day. I love it when people say, I wish we were like the first century church. I go, we are, brother. We are. Uh, so what happens is there's this council in Jerusalem, and they're arguing about whether, and, and Peter says, look, let me tell you what happened. God appeared to me in this vision. I went, and I saw Gentiles come to faith, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit, and how can we deny this? And everybody goes, okay, so the Gentiles are coming to faith. I'm not sure what we're going to do with this. Uh, but, you know, we need to send somebody there to help them, to grow, to teach them. So who do you think they send? 
Well, Barnabas. Look at Acts 11.22. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the son of encouragement shows up, and what does the son of encouragement do? Well, he encourages them. Look at verse 23. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, all with resolute heart, to remain true to the Lord. Now, as we talk about Barnabas doing this, uh, we all know that person who's Susie Sunshine. I mean, the world can fall apart and she finds the, the silver lining. We, we all know that person that's the optimist and you go, Roger, I'm just not that. I'm Eeyore. You know, I'm the guy that everything is bad no matter what. And so this sermon's great for those people, but it isn't for me. Do you know what made Barnabas able to do this? It wasn't that he was such a good guy. Uh, look at Acts 11.24. It says, for he was a good man. That's true, but... It says, and he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. God has given you what you need to be an encourager. You just have to get out of the way and let God work in and through you. All of us as believers have the Holy Spirit. All of us have his power. Now Barnabas is being used. The church is growing. Uh, you know, it would have been easy for Barnabas to sit back. He's, remember, he was, a, he was a vocational minister. He was in the temple. He lost his position. Now he's the pastor of a megachurch. If this were, you know, one of these church growth magazines, he's on the cover. Everybody's saying Barnabas is the guy. They're signing up for his seminars. What's the secret? How do we grow a big church? He could have sat back and basked in the glory and said, I'm, you know, look at all God's using me to do. But instead, look at what he does in Acts eleven twenty five through 26. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. If you've ever wondered why we're called Christians, here it is. Now, let me focus on something here. Some of you maybe have heard of a guy named John Maxwell. John Maxwell uh, was a pastor of a large and growing church, and then he, he became a, uh, a leadership uh, consultant and expert, and so many people, both believers and non-believers, read Maxwell's stuff. And one of the things Maxwell talks about is something called the law of the lid. And so the law of the lid works like this. Uh, you know people who are bottlenecks, you know, everything has to come through them and it slows everything down. Well, the law of the lid says an organization can only grow to the, the, the capacity of the leader. And so the law of the lid means that if you're a man or a woman leading an organization, a department, uh, anything like that, and, and you are uh, so self-conscious or so self-serving that you say, I, uh, everything, you know, stops with me, and I'm not going to get out of the way because I'm the founder builder. This is all about me. And what you do is you cripple your organization. The thing can only go as high as your capacity. And what a good leader will do sometimes is recognize, you know, I've taken this thing as far as it can go under me, and I'm going to get out of the way, and I'm going to get somebody who has a higher lid that can grow the organization or better meet the needs of the people that are being overseen or managed or other things like that. And Barnabas was the guy. He was the founder builder. He was a good and godly guy full of the Holy Spirit. But you know what happens is he's there among all these Gentiles and he says, you know what? 
They weren't raised as Jews. They don't know the Torah from their bar mitzvah on. They're, they're not people who are steeped in, in all of the Old Testament and the traditions and the various things. And, and I recognize I'm a good pastor, but the organization, the church in Antioch, is struggling at this point because I've outpunted my coverage. And so you know what he does? He says, who do I know who has more capacity who do I know who's a brilliant Torah scholar? Who do I? Oh, yeah, there's this guy named Saul who was this guy who was up and to the right and rising and, you know, maybe one day would be on the Sanhedrin, if not more. And he says, I'm going to go get Saul. And I'm going to bring him here and I'm going to put him on my team and I'm going to let him teach and train and grow the church. You see, what happens with these uh, self-conscious, self-serving leaders sometimes is they say, I don't want anybody around me who's better than me, because when I do that, you know what happens? I don't look like I'm the smartest person in the room anymore. And so they surround themselves with people of lower ability, which again cripples the organization another step down. But if we will get better and brighter people around us, it's a win. Who cares if you're not the spotlight person anymore? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just say this in love. Grow up and get out of the way. Uh, especially if you're dealing with the church. Don't block God's work because uh, you think it's all about you. And it applies in, in our, our lives as well. It applies in your workplaces and other things. If you see somebody who is a young eagle, a man or a woman who has capacity and more runway than you and can fly, make it your job to come alongside and promote and build them up and let them go beyond you. Uh, Barnabas was that guy. It says the believers were first called Christians. And, you know, it's here that Saul really becomes known as Paul because this, this Jewish Torah scholar becomes uh, the prominent pastor among the Gentiles. So he becomes more and more known by his, his Greek name, his Gentile version. Now, Paul and Barnabas are ministering together, and they're quite the missionary team. As you read through Acts, you're going to see God is blessing the church. It's growing. It's expanding. And as you read, you're going to notice that the team is always listed as Barnabas and Paul. Now, that's important. When you read things in the Bible and there's an order of names, often it's to show uh, the patriarch or the, the senior person or the prominent person on a team. Uh, we see it in our day, don't we? You read a letterhead, you go to a law firm, you know, the managing partner's names are first. And so uh, we read here, it's Barnabas and Paul. Acts 11.30 says, Barnabas and Saul. In Acts 12.25, Barnabas and Saul. Acts 13.2, the leaders say, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul. There's this new name for the work that I have called them. And that's going along until you get to Acts chapter 14. And you know what happens? Suddenly, Paul's name starts showing up in front of Barnabas. In fact, there's one place where Barnabas doesn't even get mentioned. Now, if you're one of those self-conscious, self-serving leaders, and you have an up-and-comer in your organization or your department who starts to eclipse you, what do you often do? Whew, this is going to stop right here. You know, we've got that branch in Tambuli in that deep, dark place that nobody knows anything about, and I'm going to assign them to that choice location, and we get them out of the way, right? Is that what Barnabas does? No. Barnabas, instead of being jealous, the son of encouragement starts cheering for Paul. He says, this is great. Paul is a guy with capacity. Paul, Paul is somebody that needs to be promoted. Paul is a guy who needs more uh, upfront spotlight time because uh, people are going to benefit from him. 
You know, one of the things you'll see here at Wayside Chapel is that other pastors will fill this pulpit on a regular basis. Uh, and there's a couple reasons. One is functional. I, I need a break. I need vacation sometimes. And there are other parts of the senior pastor's job that are not just teaching. That's primary. Uh, but there are parts of leadership and other things in the organization that I need uh, time to be able to do. So that's one area. But the other is the simple fact that God has gifted this church with an amazing group of pastors. And we have many of our pastors who are gifted in teaching. And these men need to share their gifts with you. And it's a benefit to the body because you don't just need to hear my verse, my, my words. Um, you need to hear from other people. And it's also a benefit to them because every time they get in the pulpit, they get better. Uh, one of the things I do is I listen to their sermons. Uh, when they're first getting in the pulpit, I'll often read their sermons in advance, and we'll work on them multiple weeks before they get up. Uh, but then I, I sit down with them afterwards, and I say, that was great. You did well here. This is something that could be improved. Uh, now, that happens with me as well. Many of you uh, send me notes. Uh, good try, Roger, but you forgot to mention these three things and stuff. So, but part, part of leadership, my job description as a pastor in Ephesians 4.11 says it's for the equipping of the saints. That's my job description. And y'all are the saints, the church body. But as a senior pastor, my role is to develop and grow other pastors. Uh, and God has, in every church I've pastored, I've watched associates become senior pastors in other organizations. Here at Wayside, uh, I'm in my 10th year, and we've had three men go out to be senior pastors from our team. James Mendoza planted Vista Community Church here in San Antonio. We had Icky Soma went to be pastor of City of Refuge in Houston. And Don Yates went to Pastor Emanuel Bible Church recently. Last Sunday, Don Yates was here. And, you know, we went together and had some barbecue. And it was fun to sit down with Don. And he pulled out a list and said, okay, how do you do this? What's this? I, you know. And, and I get calls from Icky and James, and I get them from Richard Liverance, and I get them from Michael Mudloff, and these are men you don't even know that are pastors from other churches. And friends, I'll tell you, I have no greater joy than to see these Sauls become Pauls, to see these gifted men uh, being used by God in greater ways. And again, I don't say that to toot my horn. I say that as an example of what you're to be doing in your lives whether it's in an organization that is a non-Christian organization or especially if you serve in that capacity. And we see that Barnabas, an encourager, was a guy who was willing to promote and build up others. And it wasn't just with Paul. In Acts 15, uh, we see another guy comes online that uh, now, again, for time, we can't unpack this fully, but there's, there's a guy by the name of John Mark. And John Mark uh, was a, a young man who went on a missionary journey, and things got tough. And John Mark, for some reason, bailed on Paul and Barnabas. He left the group. He went home. Well, later, they're getting ready to go on another missionary journey. And as they're heading out, uh, Barnabas says, hey, we're going to take along uh, this guy, John Mark, with us. And Paul says, not on your life. Uh, look at verse 39. It says there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. Now, we're not told what happens in the argument, but I can imagine that maybe at some point it went like this. 
Paul says, look, this, this guy, are you kidding me? He, he blew it. We gave him a chance of a lifetime, and he bailed on it, and we're done with him. And Barnabas goes, Paul, that's, that's great. You know, let me tell you a story about a guy named Saul <laughs> who had a horrible reputation, who was known for killing people. You know, the church was so scared of him, they wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. But somehow I remember that Saul was invited into the church and given opportunities and a second chance. And regardless of what was said, we're told that Paul says, not going to happen. And he heads off with Silas, and Barnabas heads off with John Mark. You know, how many times as Christians have we ever been faced with a person who, who failed us? who blew it, who hurt us or others, and we just say, that's it, I'm done, no other chance. You know, one of the axioms we have here with our team, uh, they'll tell you here at Wayside, I tell them, you have permission to fail forward. There are going to be mistakes you made. Now, another axiom is, uh, is this an incident or a condition? An incident is, does it happen occasionally or one time? A condition is, we're kind of repeating something here, and we're not going to keep repeating it. But how many of us are willing to extend the same forgiveness and grace to others that we ourselves have received? Did God look at us and say, I'm done with you? Or did he go to the cross and say, I'll pay the penalty. And I'm going to give you another chance and another and another. You know, as we talk about being impacted by the lives of those that Barnabas impacted, do you know what we know about John Mark? He became an evangelist. He became a prominent pastor. And if you've read the Gospel of Mark in your Bible, guess who wrote that? John Mark. Another book of the New Testament that is tied directly to the encouragement of this man, Barnabas. Now, another part of this story of redemption is seen when things come full circle. And even Paul is ministered to by John Mark. Colossians 4.10 tells us there's a time that Paul is in in one of his many prison uh, situations. And, And guess who comes and ministers to Paul? It's John Mark. And when Paul is in prison yet again, and he's nearing the end of his life, he's facing death, Paul makes three requests. He says, bring me the parchments, which is the scripture, the the rolls of Bible. He says, bring me the parchments. Bring me something warm because I'm freezing. And listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 4.11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark. John Mark. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Here is a discouraged, defeated young man that Paul saw as a problem and said, we're done with him. But Barnabas saw his potential. He came alongside, he mentored, he grew him, he he helped him get over his mistakes, and he becomes precious even to Paul. Friends, there are people all around us who are just like this. It may even be you. And I want you to know this morning that God is not done with you. God is not done with any of us. God is a God of second and third and fourth and 50th and 500th and 50,000 times 500 chances if you have to have them. If you're sitting here this morning and, and you're thinking about what your name tag would say, does it say, hello, I'm a Christian? And if you are one who doesn't yet say, I'm a Christian, forgiven by God, redeemed by him, one who's had the reset button hit, I invite you to do so this morning. If you think you've made too big of a mess of your life, you're wrong. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
when our life was a mess, when there was nothing more we could do, when we had no hope of getting to God, he left heaven and he came to earth and he got on the cross and he died for you. He paid that penalty in full as he did for me and he redeemed us and he wants to use you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're one who is a Christian, I want you to think of your name tag as well. Does it say, hello, I'm a Christian? And if it does, do people who see that act surprised or do they say, yeah, I see that in you. I see that you're a Barnabas. I see that you're an encourager. I feel your ministry. I see the impact you've made in my life and the life of others. I want you to think about that as we go to the Lord in prayer and prepare for this closing song. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord? Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word that demonstrates to us your great love, your love that would cause you to leave heaven and come to earth and step into that, that place alongside of us, not only to support us, but to become our sacrifice, our payment. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who has not yet come to faith in you, that they would do so this morning, that they would change their name tag to say, hello, I'm a Christian. I've turned from my sin into you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me. And Father, for those of us who belong to you, would we live our lives in a way that honor you and that reflect you? Would we be those who are encouragers, those who are men and women, boys and girls who look like Barnabas, who come alongside of others and live for you? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. There are going to be prayer leaders at the front after the service. If you need somebody to pray with you, I invite you to come to the front so we can come alongside and help you. I invite you now to stand and sing this closing song.